Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, Stories Behind Cookbooks, and you're tuning in for a special episode today. We're recording live in front of a studio audience here at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco. Hello, everybody. Awesome. Thank you so much for being here. And we're joined in front of this audience today by a really special panel of guests for a show that we're calling Stars of Serious Eats. Now, all of today's guests played important roles in the creation of Serious Eats, the James Beard winning food website that has, I think, forever changed the food media landscape with its deep dive stories, its focus on journalistic writing and the science of home cooking and powerful storytelling. So let's meet them. And I thought for those of you who listen to NPR and maybe have heard, wait, wait, don't tell me, we'll do this in that fashion so we can really welcome our wonderful guests here today. And we'll start all the way down at the far end from me. Uh, she's a friend of the Salt and Spine podcast, back for actually her third recording with us today, which is exciting. She's the founding editor of the Serious Eats Drinks Vertical and former managing editor of Serious Eats and the author of both the One Bottle Cocktail and Batch Cocktails. It's Maggie Hoffman. Woo! Welcome, Maggie. And next to Maggie, uh, she started as an intern at Serious Eats before becoming the New York editor and then managing editor of Serious Eats, and is the author of Brooklyn Bartender and her latest Be Your Own Bartender. It's Carrie Jones. Hey there. And next to Carrie, you know him as Kenji or Food Lab Kenji. He's the chief culinary consultant of Serious Eats, where he writes the Food Lab column on the science of home cooking. His first book is The Food Lab, Better Home Cooking Through Science, which won a James Beard Award in 2015 and is widely viewed as one of the best science-forward cookbooks. It's Jay Kenji Lopez-Alt. I don't think you have to put that science forward, just like the you, best cookbook. Or, well, there's that too. <laughs> you know, yeah, I yeah. Mean, you just forget those adjectives, man. That's true. That's true. And, and you're hearing now, interjecting next to me um, from... From the founder, and as his staff called him, the overlord of Serious Eats himself. Uh, he bought the domain SeriousEats.com for $100 in 2006, and the rest, they say, is history. He's also the host of the Serious Eats podcast, Special Sauce, and the author of several books, including his latest, which is why he's here in town today, Serious Eater, A Food Lover's Perilous Quest for Pizza and Redemption. In 2016, he was inducted into the James Beard Foundation's Who's Who of Food and Beverage in America, and he is dubbed by Ruth Reichel as the missionary of the delicious. It's Ed Levine. All right. Welcome, everybody. Stars of Serious Eats. Thank you so much for being here. It's good to be here, man. So obviously, Ed, we're here today because you're on book tour. You're promoting your latest book, Serious Eater. And so let's start there and then we'll bring everybody sure. in a little bit. So this book is really a memoir of your life, really sort of starting yeah. with childhood, going all the way through the decade plus that you spent building Serious Eats into what it is today. And one thing that really struck me in your book is how personal Serious Eats is to not only you, but to everybody who was really involved in the website in its early days or sort of the Serious Eats tribe that you talk about. So... You were a food writer at the time, yeah. freelance food writer, as you sort of had this idea for Serious Eats, which I think actually was sort of an idea for Gusto at first and then sort yeah, of evolved. Yeah, so it was supposed to be a television network that became a blog because 
I, I didn't have the $500 million necessary to, um, to have it become a cable channel. Right, as most of us don't. But, but, <laughs> but what were you thinking at the time? You know, Blogosphere is sort of just getting started. You have this idea. You don't have the $500 million to launch this gusto idea you have. How does sort of the serious eats that we know come into play? It came into play because I gusted. The gusto thing fell apart. MTV Networks decided not to go forward with it. It was supposed to be done in partnership with um, Comcast. Oh. And so, but I, in, in researching Gusto, I had explored the food blogosphere, which was still in its early days at the time, but there was um, Simply Recipes, Elise Bauer, there was 101 cookbooks, and, and but what there wasn't was sort of my take on the food culture, which is not related to recipes as these three people know better than anyone. Uh, and so I just wanted to tell those stories uh, on a blog. And blogs were being written up as the future of publishing. So then it became, it's like, oh, I can make my dream job uh, out of the blog and then raise some money. And then, of course, it'll be a straight shot. To Google them, you know, like that was the idea. It was like, how do I make this Google? You know, this was Google was still relatively uh, young company at the time, but so that was the idea. That was the um, that was the malicious assumption I was operating under. But for me, as a creative person, it was an emancipation proclamation because it's like I didn't have to do away with all the gatekeepers also known as editors. Sure. You know, when you're a freelance writer, you spend as much time, and uh, all of us know what this is like. You know, often you spend more time pitching than you do writing. Yeah. And so I wanted to reverse that ratio. And so uh, that was that was the that was the, the origin of Serious Eats. It was like, I just want to write what I want to write about, and I think people will like it. You know, I'd been doing these deep dives for the times and um, it's like, well, I don't have to. I remember Jeffrey Steingarten, who, who I briefly hosted a television show with, who was the food, then the food critic of Vogue, said, you're not going to write for the times anymore. And I was like, no. And he goes, have you lost your mind? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I started blogging as Ed Levine Eats in 2005, in December of 2005, which okay. when Gusto fell apart. And then Carrie had the misfortune to uh, answer an ad that I put, I think, in the Princeton um, job board for the summer. Okay. And she was uh, a student at Princeton, which I think which is where Maggie also went. And and there was somebody working with me who was a consultant at the time who said, you should get uh, some Princeton students. So I, I got, <laughs> you know, these four of them, and they were all way smarter than me. You know, they all attended a school that I couldn't get into. <laughs> and so, and I didn't know what the site was going to become. You know, I remember sending Carrie down more rabbit holes than she knew existed probably at the time. And away we went. And it was, you know, even when we didn't know what we were doing, 
still not clear that we know what we're doing. <laughs> I think we know what we're doing now, but um, it was magic. You yeah. know, it was like to find people that were passionate and as committed to not just my point of view about food, but values. And so, you know, and what, what all three of these people, which Kenji and Maggie carry all do. And that's really how Serious Eats grew. Was just, you know, it was like, plus I needed a lot of help. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. I needed a lot of technical right? help. Uh, our first, um, our first chief technology officer was David Carp, who went on to found Tumblr. Sure. Got much wealthier than any, anybody who's worked <laughs> at Serious Eats. <laughs> and, uh, he was 18 at the time. And, so Tumblr, even though he denies this now because it doesn't fit into the narrative, was developed for Serious Eats, although he said, look, I will license the, it was going to be our CMS, our content management wow, system. Wow, okay. And, and then you will get the exclusive, you know, I won't, I won't license it to any other food site. Okay. But so every day we would come in and, 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 our, our conference room was the line at the original Shake Shack. Uh-huh. And so and this is when Carrie was there. It was the summer of 2006. Sure. And we just we just made it up as yeah. we went along. It was just like, I didn't, you know, I thought, how hard could this be? You know, like everyone's talking about the blogosphere as the future of publishing. Right. It turns out to be really hard. Well, yeah, you talk about not knowing what you're doing sometimes. And I, I think there's this moment, I think for maybe all of you, of like putting a lot of trust in Ed and trust in his vision. And Kenji, I know when you started writing columns for Serious Eats, like you were pretty much making next to nothing. Yeah. And there's just like... <laughs> I mean, he was making $30 no a post. I, I, I was making $5 more per article than, than, than other freelancers. Yeah. Okay, well, <laughs> all right, well. 20% premium. <laughs> all right, so you were making $5 more than most other freelance writers, but you're still putting a lot of trust in investing so much time and energy into yes. this sort of site and this vision that Ed has. And I'm curious if you can talk about like what that was like to sort of put that trust in this new food media venture that you weren't really totally sure what it was going to look like someday. Uh, I mean, you know, I was too busy just like enjoying having like kind of dream job to really <laughs> think much about like where it was eventually going to go. Um, but, you know, yeah, before before I started at Serious Seats, I'd been working at um, Cook's Illustrated in Boston. And that was like, you know, like a real job with with benefits and stuff. Um, and, and a paycheck. They weren't benefits. They just weren't really benefits with a capital B. Um, um, but you know, at, at places like Cook's Illustrated and any, any kind of printed magazine, um, you're kind of restricted by what your specific audience of subscribers wants because you, you can't just like, you can't do the story about like sous vide lamb testicles in, when, when you have a subscriber base that is not expecting to see sous vide lamb testicles sure. in their right. magazine. Um, and so, so, you know, so it, working for a magazine, it, it, it was exciting and that was a great job. Um, but it was still like every November is turkey. It was just like, right. and, and, and there's this, vo- this whole issue where it's like when you write for Chris Kimball, no matter what you write, it just sounds like this Cook's Illustrated sausage that comes out. Um, and so when I started reading Serious Seats, um, and saw like, you know, like one, one of the things about Serious Seats stories is that I think within the first sentence, you know, who wrote it, um, because, um, having individual voices was so highly stressed there. Um, and so to me that was super appealing. And then like, and then, yeah, just the idea that like 
I wasn't restricted in what I had to write about. And I can like, you know, like we didn't have a ton of money and I wasn't getting paid a lot, but it was like, you know, you, you can have the budget to test whatever, whatever food things you want to test, like go test them and write about them. Um, um, and so, yeah, I mean, so for me, it was just like, there's nobody, um, I'm not going to find another job like this. Like I'm not, you know, like I've been talking to a few other, um, online publishers and stuff. And, um, you know, in most of those meetings, it was like, you would have, you would have them at maybe like a fancy, like the, the, the cafe of a fancy restaurant. Um, sure. and it's just, it's just business. Um, and then like the first meeting I had with Ed was at like a, a burger joint where, um, where he I mean, literally ordered half the menu and there was three of us there. Um, right. <laughs> and I was like, this is, this is the one I want to work for. Um, <laughs> Um, and you know, and, and obviously like a series each went on and became more successful. Um, we moved on from paying $30 an article, um, <laughs> significantly right. better now. Right. <laughs> That's good. So Carrie, were you the first intern? Am I getting that right? Of serious eats or one of the first? Yeah, I was we... in the, in the first intern class, I would say, but first I'm the one class. who stuck around. Okay. Yeah. So you, you come in pretty early as an intern you stuck around for a while, obviously managing editor eventually. And you've also sort of described some of these moments in your time at Serious Eats that sort of feel like these like invigorating, somewhat crazy moments in those early days of like jetting across the country to do regional pieces and like running all over New York City in a zip car to do to pick up food for testing. Can you tell us what sort of those early days of Serious Eats were like and what that felt like to be in that environment? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in those early days, Serious Eats really was a blog in a good way, meaning it was driven by individual voices and individual projects. And so we were allowed to just take a ton of ownership of what we wanted to do. Um, and when I found out that Serious Eats had never done a best bagel piece, you know, we were on it. We went to 80 different places. I was yeah. driving. I'd never been to a lot of Queens and Brooklyn because I'm not from New York. Um, and so I was in my zip car going all these places and, you know, brought them all back for Ed to taste. And there was a lot of, there was a real feeling of, um, kind of exploration that was really exciting. And when together as a team, we worked on the first Serious Seats book, um, JetBlue had this promotion called All You Can Jet, where you okay. could buy a pass. And for 30 days, you could take every flight you wanted, as long as it wasn't on a Friday, I believe the day okay. was. It was something ludicrous, like $500. And so um, two coworkers and I, Aaron Zimmer and Robin Lee, we all got the All You Can Jet passes. And so we would think something was normal, like get up at 4 a.m., be at JFK at 6 a.m., take a flight down to New Orleans, go to a beignet shop, beignet shop, po' boy, po' boy, gumbo, even though we weren't really writing about gumbo, fried chicken, because Ed wanted to make a left turn there, red beans and rice, po' boy, po' boy, and then be back in time for dinner, which we didn't need. No one needed dinner after that. Fair. Um, But there was a sense of just wanting to see everything and explore everything. And I think that that's one thing that really comes across in the sites, that we're we're not writing about things that other people have written about. It's really... You know, if we say this is the best pub boy in New Orleans, it's because we ate 200 for better or for sure. worse. Yeah. Maggie, when did drinks come into the picture? So you're the founding editor of the drinks section. How yeah. does that process look? Um, I started as a freelancer for $25 an hour. Okay. Uh, and uh, I was at first I was I just wanted in like it seemed I was a big fan of the site and I was reading it and I just wanted in and someone I knew knew Robin Lee and so I sent her a message and eventually I got in touch with someone and I said I'm from Portland you guys need someone to write about craft beer craft beer is happening I'm totally qualified I'm from Portland <laughs> and 
you know, not that many people were writing about beer at the time. Maybe I was qualified. And <laughs> so I kind of got into the crew doing that where we would get at that point in craft beer, there weren't thousands and thousands of breweries. It's really grown. But at that point, you could know that there are like a hundred top breweries in the country and you could write to them and say, we're writing about, you know, amber ales, send us one. Right. And then we would taste a hundred amber ales and decide which was the best. And, you know, then I got to be part of all of it that like, I remember during the book, there was a part in Portland and I was there at the time. And I remember thinking like, either this is hazing or it's so awesome. <laughs> and it was kind of both. Right. And it's always been somewhere on the hazy, <laughs> the hazy hazing scale. Yeah. yeah. But so we started including drinks and there were some great drinks writers from the beginning. Um, and we brought in some more and then it seemed like it should be a project that we should dive into, which we did. Yeah. Now, well, early Maggie, on, you were you were drinks editor and pizza editor at the same time, right? Yes. Yes. Wow. I didn't know that. There aren't too many pizza editors out there. No. <laughs> and like to have both jobs at the same time, mm-hmm. both of which are incredible jobs. Like, mm-hmm. I learned a lot about <laughs> pizza. I mean, Adam Kuban was the creator of the pizza site and really did amazing things with it. And I sort of came in to edit and hire more freelancers and all those things. Um, but. I think in the serious eats way of looking at food and drink and all of it was this sort of fundamentally ed saying, this is what we're looking for. This is what a pizza crust should be if it's in this style or, you know, this is what we want a cocktail to be, whatever it is, this understanding of what is good. Let's find it. Yeah. Um, which we could just kind of go wide on. Now, early on, serious eats was not a web, a recipe website. Um, that was intentional and we're going to talk, we're a show on cookbooks. So we're going to get to some of the cookbooks that you all have written and sort of come out of serious eats. But there's a sort of moment when you decide uh, to switch to focusing more on recipes. What was that? What was the reasoning? I mean, it was weird because I, at first I called every cookbook editor I knew at big publishing houses and it's like, well, you know, could we just license all the recipes that you've published? And then it was like, oh, you need to talk to our lawyers. You need to talk to this. And it was like, okay, this is not going to be a happening thing. So then the recipes that were on the site were from Cook the Book. They were, right. you know, we would uh, basically, it was a promotional exchange. We would write about the cookbook. Like an existing cookbook. Exactly. Yep. And publish five recipes, so five different Post besides right. the original post, and that was the exchange. Of course, we didn't actually cook the recipes. We did, Ed. We did. Oh, I'm going to yeah. contest that. Actually, actually, we eventually did, but we didn't. We didn't initially. I don't think. Um, I, I mean, I made people cook them when I came. Yeah, out. as soon as Kenji <laughs> came on, but really, the the moment I was like, oh, you know, the world doesn't need another. Uh, recipe database, and I talk about it in the book. There was mm-hmm. this, I have this breakfast with Nick Denton, who is the founder of, of Gawker Media right. and was a true digital publishing pioneer. Um, and he, 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 first he was like, I've looked at your site, you know, it's fine, you know, but you're too nice. And so he said, that, Why is there no gossip? And I said, Well, I just don't <laughs> care who's sleeping with whom in the walk in, you know, like it's, it's just, like, just not what I'm concerned about. And so then he goes, Well, what about recipes? And he, Nick Benton could care less about food, right? Right. Never had a food site, had no interest in a food site. 
um, invested in Eater originally sure. because Locke, the founding editor of Eater, was his managing editor. Okay. So that's the only relationship he had to food. So he said, what about recipes? I said, I don't know if the world needs another recipe database. And he, he whips out his phone and he goes, how many recipe searches are there a month on the web? So I have no idea, Nick. See, that's what a terrible business person I was at the time. I was like, I didn't know. And so he goes, there's 30 million. And then he looks at me and he goes, if I were you, I'd find a way to do recipes serious eat style. And so uh, it wasn't until like more than a year later that Kenji, and Kenji had actually started by writing not, non-recipes, right? Because he was still working at Cook's Illustrated. I wasn't, I wasn't allowed to write recipes. Right. He wasn't allowed to write recipes for anybody else. Right. So he wrote um, a couple reviews. of burger reviews. Yeah. And then um, he, uh, I think you left Cook's Illustrated, right? Or I was, I was, we moved back to New York and I was freelance. I was still right. uh, was, editing at Cook's Illustrated. Right. Audrey freelance, was getting so. her doctorate in mm-hmm. computer science at NYU, I think. And, um, so then I was like, you know, this guy Kenji's really smart and, uh, you know, he seems to really know how to cook. And I know from his work at Cooks Illustrated that he knows how to write. He's a great storyteller. So I remember saying to him, you know, could you be our recipe czar? You know, yeah. and it was just like somebody who would actually check or cook you know, or do whatever. Your actual words were, do you want to be our recipes are, it wouldn't take a lot of your time. (laughs) (laughs) And so that's really when the transition took place. Right. It's like, and, and, you know, just Kenji just took the, I was going to say took the ball and ran with it, but, you know, he took the, he took the computer keyboard and ran with it. And, and, and all of a sudden, you know, there was this, amazing fresh voice um you know when he wrote uh the first food lab and i said you know you should write a, a food science column and so he wrote this piece about how to boil eggs yeah and um and it was just you you, you didn't have to be interested in eggs to to see what a special talent um had written it and so I was like, wow, this is really cool. And, and the series audience responded and it became, you know, I think our highest traffic post to that point. Well, it was like 10 times the number of hits yeah, any other recipe exactly. had, so right? I was like, oh, shit, I better figure out a way to let Kenji just go crazy, yeah. you know? And so, and that's how recipes, be, you know... <laughs> This it was a grandmaster plan. It was sort of like a Soviet <laughs> five-year plan, you know, was, uh, for the economy. So uh, that's really how it happened. Yeah. Now, the three of you have written great cookbooks since your time at Serious Eats or in the time since we're talking about now. Did any of you know when you were coming on board at Serious Eats, like you were going to become cookbook authors or drinks book authors or however you might define yourself, writing recipe books? Or is that something that came about because of your time at Serious Eats? Uh, definitely, I think because of that time, my first book really started with a column that we were doing on Serious Eats, uh-huh. um, where we had had this very successful series of 
Drinks Made with a Single Spirit. And I think both books really come out of what I learned at Series Each and really from Kenji, thinking about what will people really do? Like, what are they really willing to do? And always thinking about, um, you know, what is the audience actually going to be excited about making and how much effort are they going to be willing to make? Right. And so I think both books really come from that lesson. So that's a lesson that you imbued into your cookbooks from your time at Serious Eats. Absolutely. Are there, Carrie or Kenji, are there other lessons that you took away from your time at Serious Eats that you have, like, that you see clearly in the books you've produced? Um, clearly in the book? Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, the, you know, the book comes from the column I was doing at Serious Eats. And, right. and, and I think it was about a month after I started writing that column that Ed was like, Kenji, like, you should think about writing a book about this. Like, have you met my wife, the book agent? Um, and so, so I did actually know I was going to be writing a book before I even had a full-time job at Serious Seats. Um, and, and, you know, and, and part of that actually is, is, is why I wanted to work at Serious Seats in the first place, because I, you know, I had come from a, a very sort of um, private and litigious um, employer, employer before that, um, sure. who, who wanted to own everything. And like, every, you know, like, like a normal print publication. Um, and, Part of Ed's deal with me was like, look, I'm paying you what I, what I can afford to pay you, but like, um, if you do a book, like, book rights will be yours. Um, and so and to me, name. it was like, in the name, yeah. yeah. So to me, it was like, yeah, to be able to work hard on something and know that you 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 still own it at the right. end of the day was like a really a really big um, selling point for. for for a job. Well, uh, said company came back to you when they learned you were going to write a book and wanted it, right? They did, yes. So, um, yeah. So, Cooks Illustrated, when they learned I was writing a book, wanted to buy um, the rights of the book, and um, for more money. I think I think there was that's no in money. The book, so there right? was no money. Was... So they were the first people to bid on it um, sure. before before we even started shopping it around to other um, publishers. Um, but they tried they, to make you a sweet deal, and you stuck with that. Yeah, I mean, it was a sweet deal to me at the time because <laughs> I had. I mean, we had no money. You know, I was sure. I was a freelance writer, and my wife was a student, so we had right. we had no money. So. Um, and, and, you know, they obviously knew that. So their, their deal was like a, a reasonable chunk of money up front, no royalties. Um, oh, and I, and I would get to put my name as the author on the cover of the book. And then you <laughs> couldn't write for serious. But then I, yes, I couldn't write for yeah. anybody else ever. That's yet. the clincher. It's like, it's like, we will, for this small sum, we will own you forever. Right. And so that was like a, um, yeah, clear, clear no. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. We'll be right back with the second half of our conversation with the stars of Serious Eats. But first, we've got a new segment today. Now, as you know, we love telling the stories behind cookbooks, and especially vintage works and classic books. So we're teaming up with home cookware startup Great Jones to explore some of our favorite and unique vintage cookbooks from the Great Jones Library. So today I caught up with Sierra Tishkart, co-founder of Great Jones and a former James Beard winning food editor, to talk about a really awesome find from their library, The Bread Book by Judith and Evan Jones. Now, this cookbook has a great story behind it. And here's the fun part. Sierra and I are going to talk about the bread book in just a second, but that's only half the fun. You can also head over to Great Jones' Instagram page, where today on the Instagram stories, you'll be able to see the book too, taking a sneak peek inside the pages of this classic. So let's jump right in. Hi, Sierra. How are you? Hi. Great. Thank you. So I'm so glad uh, we're able to talk today about this book that you've pulled from the Great Jones Library, The Book of Bread by Judith and Evan Jones. Tell us a little bit about this cookbook. Yeah. So Great Jones is actually named after Judith Jones, who 
was an editor and cookbook writer who published and championed so many of the legends that, that we know and love, Julia Child, Edna Lewis, James Beard. And, and she also wrote a few books herself, this being one of them that she wrote with her husband and published in 1982. Yeah, she really has such a storied um, legacy in terms of cookbook publishing. You mentioned a number of the people she published. She was also just a super well-known um, book publisher, right? She's also sort of famous for uh, publishing The Diary of Anne Frank. Correct. She's amazing. And I think her legacy often goes unknown. So so our name is really a nod to her, and we have all of her books in her library. And in, in revisiting this one, which is 240 recipes, it is okay. truly like an encyclopedia of bread. It is so comprehensive. There are so many different types of bread, whether it's steamed breads or skillet bread or sourdough starter, you know, crash course. She even has blueberry muffin recipes in here. It's just so comprehensive. So I think for a first time bread baker, this is kind of like everything you could know to set you up for success. Yeah. And why do you think it's so relevant still today? Yeah. I mean, I think one, she, in her introduction, she talks about paleontologists uncovering mortar and pestles okay. um, for grinding grain and really gets into the history of bread. And kind of the amazing thing about baking bread is, is while there's innovations and, you know, of course, constant new recipes, you know, a lot of the, the styles and, and the basis of this are so rooted in history and, and don't need to, to be updated constantly. And I think that this book really, really stands the test of time there in getting at the basics and the essentials. And I think it is an important book in that context, because people can often be really intimidated by bread baking. And if you're a new baker, a book like this that sort of is really comprehensive, but also covering the basics and and feeling really accessible can be a a really important tool in the kitchen. Totally. And I think, I think certainly part of the reason why we have so many vintage cookbooks in the Great Jones Library is one, we look to them for inspiration visually. This book is filled with all these gorgeous illustrations. Okay. It's, um, you know, so many vintage cookbooks are illustrated for, for many reasons, but it also gives the home cook so much more freedom to not feel like it has to look so perfect like they see in a photograph. And so I really love that element of it and why we keep it in the library. But it's also important to remember what kinds of cooking and recipes, like what do we need to quote unquote disrupt? And what is actually so beautiful because it is nostalgic and it has stood the test of time. And this book is just completely emblematic of that. Yeah, I love that. It reminds me of one of my favorite bread books. I don't know if you're familiar with the James Beard uh, Beard on Bread book, which I love. So it's, she, she Judith published? Jones edited that book yes. before she published it. Yes. And and to me, I, I, I'm not as familiar with Judith Jones' version with her bread book, but it, it sort of sounds very familiar to me to Beard on Bread, and particularly in terms of illustrated and very comprehensive and we've also sort of seen a resurgence, uh, I guess you could say, of illustrated cookbooks. I mean, obviously, the most preeminent is salt, fat, acid, heat. And when we talked with Samin Nostrad a while back, we talked about that and that that feeling that like photos can sometimes feel really restricting for home cooks. So I love to see these illustrated cookbooks from your library. Yes, me too. I also think something that's really powerful about the book, and it's interesting, I've, I've not read James Beard's bread book, so I need to get that to compare. But Judas legacy is so powerful because she also published and championed such a diverse group of authors. Right. And the recipes in this book, I mean, there's Moroccan Tunisian bread, there's Chinese fried scallion bread. She really crosses cultures here. 
and in a way that I think is, is very impactful and great for someone who, you know, might have a great sourdough starter and go-to recipe, but wants to expand their repertoire. Yeah. And I mean, at this point, she had published many of these authors already, right? She'd published, I think, Moderate Joffrey. She'd published Claudia Rodin. Um, so she sort of had this repertoire of um, authors. I really want to make her Earl Grey tea rolls. Oh, like, those that, sound delicious. Like, that just sounds so delicious. And it's funny seeing that, like, you know, Earl Grey ice cream is kind of a thing now, but where did that come from? And, you know, the fact that, that there's a, a sweet yeast roll recipe here with Earl Grey um, really piqued my interest. That's so fascinating. Well, I'm so glad you were able to share this book with us. Um, and uh, I hope we can talk again soon. Yes, me too. Um, I hope it encourages people to bake bread. One of the fun things about our Great Jones Duchess is that we see people baking bread in it who, who hadn't attempted it before. Um, and so this really brings it full circle for us. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks so much, Sierra. Thank you so much for having me. What an awesome find from the Great Jones Library. Remember, you can head over today to the Great Jones Instagram stories to get a closer look inside the pages of The Bread Book by Judith and Evan Jones. We're gearing up for our 50th episode of Salt and Spine in just a few weeks, and in just over a year since our launch, we have loved telling stories behind cookbooks by sitting down with dozens of your favorite cookbook authors. Just last week, we sat down with Priya Krishna to talk about Indianish, and we've sat down with Jacques Pepin, Nigella Lawson, Samin Nostra, Alison Roman, so many other authors. Salt and Spine actually has become the leading podcast featuring in-person interviews with your favorite authors. Plus, we're publishing recipes, author excerpts, holding cookbook giveaways, and so much more. And you know, this podcast is only possible because of, insert little PBS tune here, listeners like you. Did you know that you can join the Salt and Spine community and support our effort to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content starting at just $2 a month? It's a steal of a deal, and you'll get awesome perks like bookmarks, t-shirts, free cookbooks just for joining. You'll even get access to bonus content like the behind the scenes and audience questions from today's live event with the stars of Serious Eats. So go find out more and become part of the Salt and Spine community today at patreon.com backslash salt and spine. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com backslash salt and spine. And now back to our conversation with the stars of Serious Eats. Carrie, you've described some of these moments. I'm wondering if there's like an assignment that sticks out to you as one of your favorites from your time at Serious Eats. Either an assignment of your own assigning to yourself or, or a, a project you worked on. Sure. For some reason, one of the ones that sticks in my mind is when we decided to find the best chocolate chip cookie in New York. Okay. I don't know who had this idea. <laughs> um, I think there's one bakery called... Uh, Levan that does these massive cookies that are basically, Ed calls them raw cookie dough. Ed's not a fan. But it was the kind of thing that every magazine would say, this is the best chocolate chip cookie. And I think we wanted to see if we could prove them wrong. Um, so I, you know, mapped out much of greater New York um, into sections. And then we would do blind taste tests of 10 cookies at a time. And then the finalists, so to speak, were entered um, into a final round. We went through something like 150 cookies so that was just day after day after day. Um, right. And one day when we discovered that uh, Pret-a-Manger, the British sandwich chain, actually sure. has great chocolate chip cookies. They bake them fresh. Um, it, it's just a you know really top-notch uh, chocolate chip cookie. And we wrote that. And the next day, I went to Pret-a-Manger for lunch, and they were sold out of chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> and then I was so curious that I went to three others, and they were all sold out of chocolate chip cookies. And I was like, did I do that? And I'm not <laughs> sure that we did. Um, 
but just sort of the, the scope of that project. And it wasn't, you know, it's not consequential in the scheme of things, but I think the more that I write for other publications, the more I admire um, the dedication at Serious Eats to just, you know, really finding something out. Like you don't taste five cookies and decide you find the best. Like right. you taste every cookie that there conceivably yeah. is. And 150. You were asking about like, like assign, what, what was your most memorable assignment? And yeah. like, like to call anything at Serious Eats an assignment, it just like, it always <laughs> sounds weird. Cause it's like, uh, you know, back then, like the way it worked was like, we'd come to the office, you know, we, we had, we knew what stories we were working on, but it's like, if something sounds cool, you just do it. Sure. Um, um, whether, yeah, whether that's like going out and, you know, like, I'm going to go spend the afternoon eating sandwiches. Like, all right. Fine. Right. Um, it's just like, if it sounds cool to you and you're going to be excited about doing it, um, you do it because, you know, because the, the projects that you're most passionate about are the ones that you're going to write passionately about too. And I think that's a lot of what drew people to the site Yeah, is that, that, that passion, like the, the people who are writing, like clearly are obsessive and care about what they're writing about, which yeah. is not the case with all writing. Right. I think probably the second time I met Kenji, you'd just gotten your hands on a sous vide machine you were really excited about. Mm -hmm. And so you decided to see what you could do sous vide with virtually any animal cut. <laughs> Duck testicles. Duck testicles. Yeah, that was, there was another night that was that. just that. But <laughs> I mean, there were, there were alligator Something claws. Something you can never do it, never do it at Cook's Illustrated. Absolutely yeah. not. But I, I, re I remember alligator claws coming out of the Oh, yeah, yeah. And I just... 10 of the, I mean, the oddest things you can imagine <laughs> eating all came out of your soupy and you were so excited. And that, that is something that would not have happened in the gourmet test kitchen. <laughs> right. I assume. Yeah. Ed, what's it like to watch all these people who you've hired or, or worked with and had worked for you over the years? You know, we're, we're joined by three of them today, but there's yeah. dozens and dozens more. And to see the impact they've had, we're a show on cookbooks again. So like the impact sure. not on the cookbook industry too, to <clears> see <throat> books like the food lab, obviously there's Stella Parks who couldn't be with us today, but who wrote Brave Tart. There's so many people in this serious eats tribe. Yeah, I mean, What's it I, like for you? I think for me, that was the greatest surprise and unexpected pleasure was just watching the Carries and Maggies and Kenjis of the world take flight. You know, people, have, sometimes they say to me, you know, uh, are you jealous of Kenji's success with Food Lab? You know, and I was like, are you kidding? You know, it's like Kenji was like my son who got bar mitzvahed. You know, <laughs> so and my son who's here today, he actually didn't get bar mitzvahs. So I got to do a secular bar mitzvah with Kenji. Right. So um, and no, it, it's it, it's it, it's just fantastic. Uh, there's no feeling like it as I don't think as a human being and to see all these people, you know, and Max Balkowitz and. And and for them to say uh, the things they've said about serious eats, you know, uh, it's just meant so much to me because I didn't I didn't expect to derive that much pleasure and satisfaction from that, and yet it was, you know, I I you know I was I created a, a you know an extended family, yeah, and. Uh, so if you create an extended family, you can't help but be proud of, of the people that have come through and people that are there now, you know, and, uh, I want them all to, to achieve the success that Kenji and Maggie and Carrie have, you know, it's like 
that's what I ultimately derive the most pleasure from. Yeah. Yeah, you've launched so many careers in food writing. And now's the point where we turn to the roast of Ed Levine. Oh, we won't okay. do that today. Um, but that, we, <laughs> wait, how much time do you have? Well, yeah, exactly. Well, we do always like to play a little game. So I thought we'd play a little game today, since we have four of you here, <clears throat> that we might imagine we're having a Serious Eats reunion dinner. It's a potluck, so you're all going to have to bring something that encapsulates a dish or a, or a drink, a beverage, something to contribute to the potluck that for you sort of encapsulates your time at Serious Eats. So take a second to think about what that might be, what you might bring to the Serious Eats potluck reunion, and why you're bringing that. And maybe we'll start with Maggie and work our way down if you're ready. I don't want sure. to put you on the spot. Okay, Maggie, what are you bringing? I mean, the image of Serious Eats that I really have is always the sandwich cut in like 15 slivers. <laughs> um, and we would sort of like not know how many sandwiches were going to be there that day or what other weird kind of food was going to end up showing up. And so you would sort of not eat lunch, but you'd eat these sort of slivers. Um, and there would have to be mozzarella in it that had never been in the fridge. <laughs> okay. Very well, Why is that? That fresh mozzarella. Sure. You know, could be revived by some magical <laughs> milk method, but really it has, it, it has like sort of its most charm and flavor when it's just freshly made and has never sort of condensed and yeah. chilled. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. So we're starting with that. What, Carrie, what are you bringing to the Serious Eats Tribe Reunion Potluck? Um, I'm an enthusiastic cook, but nowhere near on a Serious Eats level. So I think what I would bring would be, um, this is going to be in New York because that's just where it would be. So it would yeah. be uh, pastrami from Katz's. There'd be smoked fish from Russ and Daughters. There'd uh -huh. be dumplings from prosperity dumpling or whatever we decided was the best dumpling spot in Chinatown because I think so much of the fun um, was just finding what's out there and getting to celebrate it. Yeah. You're coming in hot. You're bringing, you're picking up all this stuff on the way. <laughs> in Ed Levine style. In, in Ed Levine yeah. style. Sounds yeah, right, absolutely. yeah. Kenji, what's your contribution? Uh, I would bring uh, pizza. Okay. Because um, everybody likes pizza. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and people at Serious Eats especially love pizza. And Ned's written a book about pizza. And I like making pizza. <laughs> and it's good to share. It's like, it's like the ultimate. It's the easiest yeah. thing It's a to great share. office food. You it's don't true. even need you know, no utensils. Um, uh, and I would say on most day, there, there's probably an average of like 1.6 pizzas a day in, in <laughs> serious heats. <laughs> that sounds like a very scientific number. And coming from you, I feel like we have to trust that there's 1.6 pizzas a day. <laughs> All right, Ed, what are you bringing? I don't know. There's, well, there, there are no sweets. Like nobody's That's bringing right. sweets. Not so, so far. I feel like. We should bring chocolate chip cookies. Okay. You know, uh, or. From the van. From Pret? From that. <laughs> well, Pret's probably not making those things up. Probably. And, not. and, uh, and it could even be, I, this is, this would be a typical anthology. It's like, Stella, could you make some brownies to bring to the potluck dinner? <laughs> and so they could be Stella Parks's or, or pie. Also, Stella has. The greatest cherry pie recipe ever. Yes. So that I would take the authority that I have bestowed on myself, right, to uh, assign my food to Stella. 
So Got it. There would be cherry pie or brownies. Okay. <laughs> and it's interesting because you know we, we just did a couple of events at at, at Worst Hall and right. which is Kenji's uh, restaurant. Yeah, uh, which is Kenji's restaurant in San Mateo, and he uses we serve Stella's brownies. Yeah, they serve Stella's brownies okay. with a couple of add-ons, brilliant add-ons, pretzel salt, and okay. Uh, but um, yeah, so they're fresh in my mind. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, it sounds like a great potluck. All right. Well, we could talk to all of you all day easily about Serious Eats and your work and cookbooks, but I think we have to wrap our show here. So let's hear it for our wonderful stars of Serious Eats. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all episodes on saltandspine.com. There, you'll find a recipe right from Ed Levine's latest book, Serious Eater. It's the recipe for Stella Park's cherry pie. Now, this recipe is so good that according to the head note, after Ed Levine had his first bite, more than one expletive rolled out of his mouth. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. You can also join the Salt and Spine community at patreon.com backslash salt and spine. There you'll find bonus content like the audience question and answer session from today's live event. We talk to the stars of Serious Eats about East Coast versus West Coast, about Kenji's next cookbook and a little blowtorch technique that he revealed to us, and about which food media they're watching today. Our show today was produced by Clara Hogan and me, Brian Hogan-Stewart. Our original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks. You can find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Sierra Tishgart and the Great Jones team, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey, I'm Kim Holderness. And I'm Ben Holderness. We host the Holderness Family Podcast every Tuesday. You may know us from the silly videos that we make online. Or a book about marriage called Everybody Fights. Or as winners of season 33 of The Amazing Race. Still can't believe that happened. Listen, we do a lot of stuff, but our podcast is our most favorite thing. Yeah, because every week we get to sit down face-to-face, talk to each other about marriage, family, mental health, or just anything that we want to know more about. Sometimes we have expert interviews, sometimes it's just us, but our goal is to bring some joy and laughter into your life every week. Our other goal is that maybe you will learn something as well. Right. So search the Holderness Family Podcast and check out our most recent episodes. We have one about staying organized with creators of the Home Edit. And one about being diagnosed with ADHD as an adult. We hope you'll join us. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>